Hi everyone, welcome to the brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, Happy New Year to you all. Yep. By the time you're listening to this, it would have been... Uh, it would be 2021. Yes, uh, of course 2020 um, has been... Um, Flat out terrible year for many people, most of the world. Um, so we're glad to put that behind us. Uh, mm-hmm. But for the first episode of GE on 2021, uh, wow, it's, it's still hard to say, but you know, <laughs> anticipating it for 2021, uh, it's probably our biggest episode of the year per usual because so many big things come out in December traditionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and COVID or no COVID, there's no exception here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think despite the fact, like you know, that the movie industry has been uh, and all filming and production basically slowed down, we still mm-hmm. got a, we still got quite a, a number of things to talk about. Yeah, uh, admittedly, a couple of the big topics here were pushed from summer releases. I'm talking about Soul, which was supposed to be released this summer, did not mm-hmm. happen. Uh, also talking about Wonder Woman 1984, supposed to be released this summer and did not happen. Was pushed to December, but hey, uh, you know, um, I don't mind that. It gives us uh, things to do uh, if you're isolated at home during the holidays. Yeah. Uh, so this is the episode in which... Uh, of course, we award the best father of 2022 of yep. 2020 to Pedro Pascal in <laughs> The Mandalorian, right? He's clearly the best father of the year. Uh, uh, yeah, but not so much in the other one. So Exactly. And also <laughs> the one where we award the worst father of 2020 to Pedro Pascal in Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a big it's a big year for him, I guess, overall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we are not going to be talking about his other film, uh, We Can Be Heroes, uh, on this episode, but we will be covering it next episode. I haven't seen it yet, but it does also star Pedro Pascal <laughs> in the sequel to Sharkboy and Lava Girl by uh, Robert Rodriguez. Um, so yeah, it was a big month for him. Um, he's obviously, you know, gotten a lot of roles and recognition since Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he's cashing in now on every every genre uh, of every subgenre of genre there is. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for him, I guess. Uh, besides that, we also have a lot of animation to talk about, actually. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very animation-heavy episode, despite our, our first two topics being live-action, of course. We have Soul, um, the latest uh, existential crisis from Pixar. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have Wolfwalkers uh, coming out of Ireland from Cartoon Saloon, yep. uh, heavily representative of uh, old Irish folklore. Uh, we'll also be talking about the latest season's of uh, Big Mouth uh, mm-hmm. out on Netflix. Speaking of Netflix, we'll also be talking about the latest season of Hilda, which is back after two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are other animations on, on the list as well, uh, but we'll get to that later. But those are our big ones so far. Uh. Yep. Um, what, uh, before we begin with any of the reviews, uh, straight out of the top, right? What was your favorite of all the big ones? Of all the big ones? I yeah. really enjoyed Mandalorian this season. Same. Uh, I think that... I. I I don't think it is difficult to say it's the best Star Wars I've ever seen. Yeah. Star Wars anything, like hands down, right? And mm-hmm. like just being able to strike that kind of balance between, you know, introducing um, new people into into the canon and all of that and, you know, trying to please the fanboys, you know. Of course, there are going to be plenty of them who are still unhappy. Mm. But I think they struck a really, really good balance with that. And it's surprising that, you know, it's taken this long for something to work as well as it does, right? Um, yeah, heavily invested in what's going to happen. Um, and like tons of fan service all over the place and fan service done, right? Yeah. So like very little to complain about as far as the Mandalorian goes. 
Yeah, I mean, with that being said, let's kick it off with the Mandalorian. Um, it it may or may not be the live action, the best live action Star Wars of all time, but yeah. you know, it's right up there. Clearly, it is definitely the best live action Star Wars in the last thirty seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever since you know the original uh, trilogy ended, uh, and yeah, it was back for a second season. Uh, it follows Din Djarin, uh, the titular Mandalorian, as he scours the galaxy trying to return. The child, aka Baby Yoda, uh, no spoilers for the actual name if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Uh, back to his kind. Uh, <laughs> true to form, I think the Mandalorian second season uh, continues to be uh, very gorgeous, uh, very gritty, uh, very fun, uh, and very brisk. You know, a very brisk economical approach to the space western genre. Yeah. Uh, when the journey of uh, Mando and the child, uh, you know, it, it forms the true line though. But I, I still really adore. That the Mandalorian is refreshingly committed to telling uh, self-contained episodic stories, uh, bolstered by exciting action and tidy conclusions in mm-hmm. each episode. Um, in an era where most shows are serialized to the point where they are feeling like overlong twelve-hour movies, um, I found Mando to be a breath of fresh air, uh, harkening back to the old-school shows where each episode felt distinct. Yep. Uh, many may complain about how quote-unquote. Uh, fillers, some of the side missions are, but seeing as the show is heavily inspired by, you know, classic Western series like Lonesome Dove and, and Japanese Shambara like Lone Wolf and Cup, the episodic structure is perfect for the tone and vibe that it wants to evoke. Uh, in fact, its juxtaposition of, you know, you know the, the Western and samurai genres is more blatant than ever mm-hmm. uh, this, this season. Yeah, uh, yeah um, really great. That, that was my initial thoughts on it. What about you? Um, I, I think they really kind of picked up the ante from season one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I enjoyed that the pacing was good you know I mean season 1 was good I think we got a lot of like interesting looks into um, how different directors wanted to treat the story mm. right uh, last season so this season not I don't think was as distinct I we had like some pretty interesting names like Bryce Dallas, uh, Dallas Howard did one Dave mm. Filoni did one Robert Rodriguez did one uh, actually all of them directed in season 1 too yeah uh, yeah so ha- having them come back right um you, it gives like a very distinct kind of separation between the episodes, which I love about mm. that. And with the overarching kind of storyline pushing forward, uh, regardless of what the mission at hand was, um, you know, it made it very uh, easy to be invested, right, in what's going on. Like already season one, I think, had a lot of goodwill going for it. And like they to be able to keep that up in season two without letting uh, letting off is, uh, is very impressive. Yeah, um, I grew up, in an era where episodic television was the norm, uh, you know, like, you know, like, uh, you can watch any episode in any order, that kind of thing. Yep. Uh, and then, like, you know, a lot of viewers our age uh, will w- remember that era and remember craving for, you know, more continuity, yeah. more serialization, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Uh, it's gotten to the point where we've gotten so much of that, where, you know, the typical Netflix shows, I'm not saying all Netflix shows, uh, but I think the typical streaming shows, yep. first three episodes are great, last three episodes are great, everything in the middle, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just feels like a very bloated one story, you know. Here, the side missions and the episodic format aren't filler at all because, you know, while the stories may be self-contained, the show does a wonderful job of uh, fleshing out the Star Wars universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it introduces casual fans to expanded lore from the books, expanded lore from the games, and expanded lore from the animated series, you know. Yeah. You, you got introductions, very economical introductions mm-hmm. and organic ones to 
uh, the Death Watch, uh, Night Owls and Bo-Katan. You got Asuka Tano, uh, Baby Yoda's Jedi history, Grand Admiral Fraun thrown in, uh, Operation Cinder from the Battlefront 2 games. Mm-hmm. Um, Filoni and Favreau have done a stellar job of meshing the expanded universe with the live-action mainstream canon yeah. uh, in an organic fashion. Uh, similarly, you know, more than even the original Star Wars, I feel, uh, this really evokes the, the mix of, you know, John Wayne and Kurosawa exceptionally. Uh, both genres are so traditionally symbiotic, right? Because, yeah. you know, Westerns rip off samurai movies, samurai movies rip off Westerns. Um, you know, famously, the Magnificent Seven is uh, based off the Seven Samurai, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, really loved all of that aesthetically as well. Uh, yeah. Um, it, you know, they introduced, reintroduced Boba Fett uh, in, oh, and, and kind of <laughs> logically retconned his history, uh, particularly the clarification that Django was a foundling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and Boba, so badass in this season, uh, him and his armor did more things in 30 minutes here <laughs> than in the last um, 50 years, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and I think like much like how Filoni successfully rehabilitated the, the prequels with Clone mm-hmm. Wars and Rebels, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he's kind of begun the, the long, arduous journey of trying to redeem the sequels uh, with the mystery of Baby Yoda, Moff Gideon's experiments, uh, so on and so forth, which I think is kind of laying the groundwork for making the whole Snoke Palpatine resurrection feel a bit more earned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the First Order feeling more, uh, feeling a bit more logical and earned as well, you know, the, the roots of it. Yeah. Uh, I pretty much loved everything about the season. It made big, bold moves, expanded the lore, introduced and brought back amazing legacy characters, yeah. uh, featured multiple riveting side quests, uh, showcased unbelievable special and practical effects. You know, this show really makes me think that, you know, you remember like when we all, all like gushing over how good Game of Thrones looked, you know, Game of mm-hmm. Thrones wasn't great in the final seasons, but it looked great. Yeah. Uh, the Mandalorian really showed the difference between uh, like Disney money and every other company's money. Disney money is like next level. Uh, uh, <laughs> they can do anything uh, and, and on a green screen too. Uh, yeah. Um, most importantly, it continues to make us ours cool and exciting again. Yeah. 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 We, I mean, like, I, I think with all the brahaha that's been happening with the movies over the last five years or so, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Mandalorian, it's often strange. I often have to think about the fact that like so much falls on Dave Filoni's shoulders <laughs> to yeah. fill up these gaps, right? And he's been doing it for years and years, you know, and it's, sometimes it really feels like a labor of love. Um, mm. And I don't know, uh, with the exception of the fans who caught on, right, with Rebels and with, um, Clone, with Wars. Clone Wars, you know, uh, like he's he's relatively unknown like, as far as the world of Star Wars goes. Everyone talks about the movies. Everyone talks about di- directors attached to the movies. Mm. Um, but really, the one who has been doing the heavy lifting for the entire universe over the last decade really has been Filoni. And I think it is great that Mandalorian has become as popular as it is, you mm. know, and for him to kind of get his due uh, I agree. I mean, even with the Mandalorian season two, a lot of people still keep saying John Favreau is a showrunner. He is, but uh, I think visually is a Favreau thing, and, mm-hmm. and story wise, and and trying to tie up canon and trying to fix things is all Filoni. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, like, it's it's always great as we've seen, you know, with the most kind of major franchises when you have like a visionary who is who knows exactly where he wants things to go and how he wants things to play out and how it ties into the greater world. What yeah. Feige does at, at Marvel, um, you know, like it really does help, um, as opposed to you know what's happening at DC. 
oh man, DC is, DC is such a mess, and, and we'll talk about that later. Lah. So especially, I mean, I want to talk about HBO Max and, and all yeah. of that later on when we get to Wonder Woman 84. It's pretty natural transgression. But with Disney+, Plus, I think they finally gotten Star Wars right. They mm. finally gotten the right people behind Star Wars. Yeah. With the announcement at DC, uh, I'm sorry, not Disney, Disney's uh, Investor Day meeting uh, of the expanded Star Wars universe now, where there'll be, you know... Um, debuting 10 shows over the next five years. Uh, Patty Jenkins is going to be directing a new uh, Star Wars movie and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. The fact that all of this ties in together and, and you have like Favreau and Filoni as the, as the quote-unquote Feige of the universe now. Yeah. Um, I think we're finally going to get to see consistency in a much-beloved franchise that hasn't seen consistency in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I'm glad for that, right? Like, I think it's really, really promising. Now, if the movies, given everything that's happened, can get their act together, mm. um, I am, yeah, I think Star Wars can continue into future, you know, past all the laurels that it's earned itself. Agreed, you know, like, uh, I think you you finally united a, div- a very divided fan base mm-hmm. uh, into, with a franchise like The Mandalorian that has been so consistently stellar. Yeah, um, yeah. And do you have any like final thoughts, uh, non-spoiler thoughts before, you know, we delve a bit into spoilers and, and I ask you about your favorite episodes or moments of season two and stuff like that? Um, no, nothing in particular that I want to add on because like there's plenty to talk about as far as spoiler territory goes. Definitely, man. Uh, so we'll be jumping a little bit into spoilers right now. Uh, we're, we're, we're giving you a warning. So if you want to tune out for a bit, probably the next three to four minutes will be spoiler heavy. Um, so yeah, uh, what were your favorite uh, episodes or in general aspects of season two? Um, favorite episode? I think a lot of it has to do with the characters that they've introduced this time around. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring Bo-Katan, you know, into into the fold and kind of like expanding on that. Um, uh, played, played by Kitty Sackhoff, who actually voiced uh, Bo-Katan in the animated series. Mm-hmm. And the character was drawn to uh, mimic her, like- her likeness. Like. She was yeah. the perfect casting. Yeah, it was amazing, like, just to kind of see her come to life that way, right? And having watched all the animated series and, and everything yeah. that she's done there gets carried over, you know, in, into the world of uh, The Mandalorian. Uh, so like that particular episode was great. I can't remember the name. Which wait, which episode was that? Uh, the Harris. Harris, yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah episode three. Um, of course, Jeng, um, <clears throat> Boba Fett coming back. Yeah, tomorrow uh, Morrison. Yeah. yeah, amazing, amazing stuff. Like I love just the swagger and the fact that you know he doesn't give two hoots about what's who you are mm-hmm. and what's going on. Like he wants his armor back. And mm-hmm. just that moment, right? Like when he reappears with his armor on, damn, like what a payoff right yeah. there. You know, badass without the armor, but like nothing quite strikes fear, right? Into people knowing that um the the most fearsome bounty hunter in in the galaxy is back. Indeed, you know. Um, unfortunately, Ashley uh, Eichstein, who voices Ahsoka Tano, looks nothing like Ahsoka Tano. Um, yeah. So they had to recast it as Rosario Dawson. What do you think about uh, Roda- Rosario Dawson's portrayal I, of such an iconic character? I really like Rosario Dawson as, as Ahsoka Tano. I mean, like, she's a fan favorite, right? Like, no matter who you cast, people are going to be like, oh, you know, I think it should be her or it should have been them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but she looks the part, right? For yeah. sure. And I think like the moment they kind of like when the rumors started going around that she was going to be picked for it, I was all for it. I think we talked a bit about that with Hardy as well. Yeah. Um, you know. Um, I do feel like her particular version of Saka, uh, of Asuka Tano is a bit more mellow than what we've seen in the animated series. 
Mm. Um, but some time has definitely passed since then. And she has, you know, made, might have been dead for a while, then came back and all of that mm-hmm. jazz that we had to kind of go through with Rebels as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm guessing, you know, like her more kind of muted disposition um, comes from many more years of having, you know, seen things and having to do things as well. Which yeah. I think fits, right, as far as the lore goes. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, her fight scenes were so impressive. Uh, I have mm. to say, like, off the bat, straight out the, the beginning of the episode, you see her at work doing what she does, mm. you know, with the white lightsabers, which has its own kind of, like, canonical connotations as well. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it was really, really good. It was cute to see um, her interacting with uh, the child as well. Mm. Um. Just having these forced... I don't know, conversations, I guess, for the lack of a better term. Um, straight up, that episode, uh, clear uh, homage to um, nearly every Kurosawa movie ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. The most obvious homage, uh, I mean, uh, every episode homages um, a, a classic trope or a classic type <laughs> of movie, you know. You have the Indiana Jones-style episode in one of them. Uh, I think uh, but it's a 1930s movie called Wages of War that is really good. That mm-hmm. episode 7 uh, copied, you know, when they were uh, transporting the explosive substance on a, um, on a vehicle. Uh, if you haven't seen Wages of War, it's from the 1930s. I think it's set in World War One. It's a bunch, a bunch of soldiers who have to transport nitroglycerin uh, mm. in a lorry. Uh, very similar to that. La. I mean, really love the, the classic <laughs> homages. Uh, that's definitely Favreau, a yeah. film fan. Sure. Um, for me, you know, as, as cool as all the nerd moments were, and don't get me wrong, I love that, you know, like, for example, Bo-Katan um, trying to, uh, or not trying to, like, basically tying up and explaining the different Mandalorian cultures. Uh, yep. You know, the Mandalorian is not a monolith. There are different types of Mandalorians. There are different belief systems within mm-hmm. Mandalore. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was interesting because a lot of fans in Season 1 were confused as to why uh, Din was so um, uh, extremist in his, in his so, quote-unquote religion. You know, I yep. wouldn't take off my mask. It's exactly, you know, things like that. Uh, Bo-Katan is more of a, more of a lenient, a modern Mandalorian, mm-hmm. uh, shall we say. <laughs> uh, yeah, but all, all of that was cool, you know. Uh, but but the one moment that I really really enjoyed, uh, surprisingly enough, was the return of Bill Burr, uh, oh, his character. God. Yeah, yeah. We, um, we man, he, his conversation uh, <laughs> scene in the mess hall with the Imperial commander uh, about uh, the atrocities of Operation Cinder, which is a, a callback to a video game, uh, unusually, uh, is legitimately I think the single best uh, acting moment, like pure substantive acting. Uh, you know, with his PTSD and his guilt, you know, uh, in Star Wars for some time, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not saying it's like the coolest moment or the most iconic moment, yep. but I'm saying for the most, for the most pure seriousness and and kind of haunting, meaty, dramatic substance, mm-hmm. it's a very Tarantino-esque uh, dialogue scene. Yeah, uh, I think I think Bill Burr gave the most mature, realist, uh, nuanced performance uh, of his life in that one. He really killed it. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see the video where they overlaid his rant about Star Wars onto? Oh onto yeah, the- yeah. I mean. Uh, on his podcast, he's he's famous. He was famously anti Star Wars. Uh, Favreau casted him because of that. Actually, yeah, uh, I love it. I love it. Like it, it was just one of those really kind of meta moments that um, fans, who, you know, are kind of in the know of what's going on in the background, right? Um, yep. Were waiting for, and then for him to deliver that performance, damn! Like it, it was really quite something. Indeed, you know, um, of course, the finale gave us the biggest moment of the Mendo's uh, history, uh, not just with the rescue. Uh, not just with the review of uh, Boba Fett's uh, spin-off show, The Book mm-hmm. of Boba, mm-hmm. uh, but also with the introduction of, uh, reintroduction of uh, Luke Skywalker, Digital DH, Mark mm-hmm. Hamill, showed mm-hmm. up for a cameo, R2-D2 was there. Uh, when Mando asked him, uh, are you a Jedi? You know, his reply should be, motherfucker, I'm the Jedi. <laughs> um, 
what, uh, what, what do you think about how that whole moment was done? Did you think the CGI was a bit spotty? You know, I had some, I had some complaints about that too. Uh, I, I think in the moment it was okay. I know I was too happy to. Yeah, care. I, I was yeah. just kind of like, yes, this is what we need. This is what we've needed for like, like so long, right? Just for mm-hmm. everything, just to kind of tie back together to to like a main law character. So yeah. I wasn't too bothered about it. I mean, like clearly it wasn't the best CGI. Yeah. Uh, but then again, you know, um, we are, it, despite the fact that it's being Disney, it is TV after all, right? We don't expect the same kind of like resources to be pumped into a scene like that. Hey, uh, Martin Scott says he spent 300 million trying to do the Irishman. And I, I think this did a better job than mm, that one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So like the, it's the implications that it has on the future of the story that I'm most interested about. Like the appearance of Luke and, you know, the meeting of the characters uh, as mm-hmm. well as well, the dark saber like, largely, you know, and how mm-hmm. that's going to play out in terms of uh, Mandalorian law. Mm-hmm. It's going to be super interesting, right? Like, since it's especially the dark saber since his appearance at the last episode of last season, yeah, you know, and just kind of like hanging in the balance. Then you got Bo Katan coming in and all of that. Like, it's pulling a lot of new fans into a very niche area of kind of like Star Wars canon, mm. right? And I find that extremely exciting to just see how they're going to do it. Um, you know, and to kind of keep people interested in 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 a, a subset of of the Star Wars universe that I don't think has gotten enough um, exposure up till now. In, indeed, indeed, you know, um, with Luke Skywalker, it was such a big fan moment that was introduced pretty organically. I think mm-hmm. it wasn't like. Um, you know, it wasn't just like throwing in a legacy character just because it will pop the audience. It was yep. it had uh, it felt organic like, like everything Favreau and Feloni have done this season. Mm. Like Bo-Katan's introduction felt organic, Ascatano felt organic. Yeah. Um. You know, little mentions of Grand Admiral Fraud. You know, and that felt organic. Everything were like made sense like in the moment. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um. I I, I actually kind of figured it was going to be Luke Skywalker the moment uh, Boba Fett wasn't um, involved in the rescue. Yeah. Um. I mean, it would have been an awkward situation if Boba was there, like, considering. <laughs> I, mean, I, I would have loved to have seen that moment, right? Yeah. Because there's just like so much history between the two of them. Uh, yeah. And that, but I mean, it could have been just very well, like they just didn't have the time to explore that, you know? Yeah, they didn't have time for a Luke uh, Boba fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would have, well, that would have been, that would have been really interesting. Uh, and and um, a huge moment in general for, for Star Wars. But, um, you know, maybe we'll see that in the future. Who knows? Definitely. Um, Disney recently announced uh, speci- a lot of shows, uh, but the specific shows I wanted to talk about were the ones that set they are set in the Mandalorian timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, Book of Boba Fett, which was announced with a, a cool post credit sequence where he takes over the underworld of uh, of Tatooine. Yep. Um, also, what else? Uh, uh, Rangers of the New Republic has mm-hmm. also been announced, as well as the Ahsoka Tano show, mm-hmm. and of course, Mandalorian season three, yeah. uh, The idea is that they are going to use uh, these four shows to uh, to kind of sync up into a Defenders style uh, crossover at the end of it. Yeah. Um. You, wh- which are the shows that you're looking forward to the most, and uh, do you think that they, they, this can work out? You know, um. Again, Rosario Dawson is trying to tie together four different shows into yeah. uh, a United Universe. Yeah, uh, what, what do you think about th- th- that plan? It would be it would be kind of of a feat, like I guess. But I think Disney does have enough kind of experience with doing that uh, mm. thus far, right? Um, you know, they kind of like for the rescue, they kind of had a kind of a mini Avengers Assemble moment. Mm. Um, so you know, if they want to kind of do what the DC TV universe has been doing for a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, with with legends and and all of that, 
I think it could work for sure. I'm very excited to see the Boba Fett one. I think the the, the premise is interesting, mm-hmm. and I think that um both uh that uh, both him and the inclusion of uh, Ming Na Wen, mm-hmm. who is really quite a character, like she's she's done like so many things in her career, like and for her to kind of play, I can't remember her character's name though. Uh, Fennec. Yeah, so Fennec and Boba Fett. Yeah, I'm down for that. Like, if that's what they're going to be doing, uh, I'm yeah. I'm pretty hyped for that. As well. uh, she has been in every aspect of Disney. Uh, she was Mulan. Mm-hmm. She was in Agents of Shield. So mm-hmm. therefore, in MCU, and now she's in Star Wars. Uh, there is nothing <laughs> in Disney that she hasn't done yet. You know, uh, I guess she she just needs to wait to be in a Pixar movie, like, But that will happen eventually. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm, um, the Ahsoka Tano one. I think it will be pretty good. I think Rosario Dawson mm-hmm. has shown that she has the caliber to carry, you know, things by herself. Especially, I um. With with everything she what was the last thing that we kind of saw from her TV wise? Um, Rosario Dawson. Daredevil, I guess. Uh, Daredevil season three probably, or maybe Punisher season two. I, I'm not yeah. sure which one of those was the last one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, time timeline aside, like she did plenty well in those two. Um, yeah. so I'm, she was in Iron Fist and Luke Cage as well. Mm. So yeah. we, we'll, I mean, like al- already, you know, she has the quality to kind of like deal with the TV series. Yeah. Um, for her to carry it, I don't think it'd be too much of a stretch. So I'm very mm-hmm. curious about that. I'm hoping that they delve into all the years that she's been missing, mm. um, because like uh, that has been like a major kind of point of of questions uh, for the fandom, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially in doing Rebels where she only like appears here and there. Yeah, hundred uh, percent agree. Um, the show I'm really looking forward to the most is. Uh, Radius of the New Republic, not because I know anything about it, but yeah. because I know that it's going to be a cop show with Mr. Kim in the galaxy uh, from Kim's Convenience. You know, like he yeah, was, yeah. Uh, he's, he's been on the Mando show like, a couple of times, cameo. Uh, he is the main character for Radius of the, uh, of the New Republic. Ah, and I see. To see Mr. Kim from Kim's Convenience being space cop in a show um, fascinates me. <laughs> I don't yeah. know why. It's just yeah. such an interesting idea. Uh, yeah, uh, but you know, Grant and Mofron being the Thanos of that corner of this universe uh, <laughs> feels very natural, feels very good. I think it's going to be a good bit, big bat. Uh, where do you see Mando Season 3 going? Ooh. Because it, it did it did pretty much neatly wrap up um, Baby Yoda's arc. Uh, yeah. And, you know, um, people are wondering whether, you know, Kylo killed him. I, I kind of hope he did, you know, because he adds weight to Kylo as a character. But, you know, uh, where, where, where do you think Mando goes from here? I, I think a large part of it is going to be having to do with Mandalore itself, right? Mm. Um, I think the Darksabers uh, implications carry over very well from where they ended off. I mean, mm-hmm. now that, you know, it's with, J- uh, it's with Din. Um, and you, whether or not Bo-Katan has legitimacy as the heiress, as the princess mm. of, of Mandalore is a huge kind of question mark, right? Like mm. the legitimacy of that. I think we're going to see a lot more of the, the formation of the First Order mm. uh, in that aspect. So the adventuring will continue. I think the format isn't really going to change, but the, con- the, like, the greater meta context in the galaxy uh, will start to ramp up, I mm. feel. Especially if they're going to be doing all the other shows kind of like simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. I actually think season three is is still going to keep the episodic structure. I mm-hmm. think Bo and Mandalorian uh, and Din are probably going to put their differences aside for the moment to try to reunite the various Mandalorian clans. Yeah, they're gonna you know the big battle sequence at the end is probably going to be the retaking of Mandalore. Yep. Uh, and then we are probably going to delve into uh, John and Daenerys done right. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah. With, with with very like with a few seconds, I think like Bokatan's screen time is like less than five minutes. You know, they've already expressed concisely with no fat what Bokatan is all about, mm-hmm. how she has the Darius esque uh, the problems with her personality. Yeah, she, she's a, she's a little power hungry. She's she's a little uh, single minded in her quest for the throne. Yeah, you know, it's gonna it's gonna present some interesting problems. Yeah, yeah, it it will be super interesting given she's the modern Mandalorian, right? And uh, yep. with Din's kind of like whole, you know, children of the watch thing. Yeah, but but you know, Din has been um the character that has uh, that he's open minded. He's evolved, you know. In season mm-hmm. one, was his whole arc. I don't trust droids, you know. Yeah. Now now he trusts droids, and then like now he's taking his mask off, you know, like under exceptional <laughs> circumstances, you know. But 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 sometimes he takes off his burqa. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, like, I think there's plenty there for them to build on. Yeah. And uh, it will be super interesting. A super interesting relationship dynamic to see play out on screen as they go about with their adventures. Indeed, indeed. Uh, do you ever think the Mandalorian series will ever go to the timeline of the sequels? Ooh. Hmm. Because I feel like a big loose end for Mando or probably the final season is is baby is is um. Well, we're in spoiler territory now. Like, is, yeah. is Grogu's is Grogu's fate? You know, yeah. did he die in the second massacre? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I I don't know. I don't know. That's a bit difficult. I think personally, as a fan, that's what I want to see. I want it. I want them to get as close to that as possible, right? Yeah. Uh, but I don't know if it's logistically workable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it really, really depends on how they're gonna do that. Like, I hope they push it as far as it can go log- logically, mm-hmm. um, w- without you know breaking, I'm breaking all all of the goodwill that is built up so far. Yeah, yeah, you know, but you know, I I, I would like to explore that. Like, it's a big question: Did Grogu die? Yeah. Um, I I hope he did because I think it adds value to Kylo as a villain. It, he's he's a very he's fairly lightweight villain in the yeah, sequel. Yeah. You know? Exactly. This gives him a bit of like uh, a bit of a his resume is now padded uh, with business <laughs> things, you know. Uh, yeah. killed my father uh, and um, you know, killed Baby Yoda. People are gonna be upset even mm-hmm. more so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, if Baby Yoda is alive, I wouldn't mind it for like that will be you know the final season of the Mandalorian, probably. Yeah. Uh, an old man din or old Mando din uh, old man- story oh, yeah. story with uh with Grogu uh, as a probably a teenager now. Oh, yeah, that's no, gonna no. be so bizarre, but I love it. I love it already. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, lots to look forward to in the Star Wars universe, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't, I can't believe I'm saying it because I, I had I was I pretty much washed my hands of Star Wars a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like honestly, it's just been such a ride to see these two seasons of Mandalorian, and to hear kind of like people who are just like, "What Star Wars is trash," and mm. they're just like so hyped on the fact uh, that Mandalorian is doing what it's doing. Definitely, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, so how would you rate the Mandalorian overall? Uh, for the season two, I'm gonna give it a solid eight out of ten. Like I started, mm-hmm. couldn't put it down. Pretty much. I mean, like I was looking forward to every episode every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and just like kind of having the time to dissect what you know all the everything that uh everything they were showing us and all the people they were introducing, what it meant for the story going forward. Yeah. I haven't felt this invested in anything Star Wars in a quite some time. 
Same. Uh, yeah, same. Exactly. It's an 8 out of 10 for me as well. Uh, echo your thoughts uh, precisely. Uh, next up, our next live action. Uh, more <laughs> Pedro Pascal with Wonder Woman 1984. Mm. Uh, Betty Jenkins' uh, sequel to Wonder Woman, uh, set in 1984, as it says. Uh, probably by default, the only feel-good movie blockbuster of the year. Yeah. Uh, I suppose besides the part where Wonder Woman kind of rapes a dude. Uh, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, yeah. We'll get there. I'm... I'm going to say this up, friend. Wonder Woman 1984 has no business getting a passing mark for me. No business. This movie has so many flaws. Uh, like, I can objectively see that as a critic. Like, I yep. see it. Like, near, nearly every part of this movie, every infinitesimal part of it has a, has a glaring issue to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed it because it, it, because it was tonally so bright. Uh, yep. it, was, it had, like, such a powerful, empathetic, kind message that I was willing to like close one eye with all the problems but I don't but I just want to say I do see the problems yeah yeah uh so yeah uh what is it about um I suppose you know like aside from I guess a brief but uh, quite an exhilarating flashback to young Diana uh competing at the OG Olympic Games I guess uh the Miss Kiran Ninja Warrior is what mm, it is yeah um, pretty much. the the film takes place in 1984 uh it is an age defined by American capitalist greed. Uh, it kind of kick-started America's road to capitalistic access, right? You know, with yep. uh, Wall Street, you know, Gordon Gekko's uh, greed is good and all of that. So Diana tackles themes of selfishness and wish fulfillment, literally, uh, as defined by two new villains. One is billionaire uh, oil tycoon Max Lord, who's played by Pascal, mm-hmm. and a bumbling bookish geologist Barbara Minerva, played by Kristen Wiig, who eventually becomes Cheetah uh, due, due to magic rock reasons. Um, plus, Diana is also dealing with the sudden shocking return of her long-dead ex-boyfriend, Steve Trevor, Chris Pine. <laughs> uh, don't worry, the, the plot twist that was revealed in the trailers is actually a bit more clever than it sounds. Yeah. You know, it's a bit, it, has, it has a good plot value to it uh, yeah. and, and poignancy. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many issues with this, with this movie, and I'll get to the flaws later, but subjectively... Um, Hit all the right notes for me. I think it's just so emotionally powerful. This kind of neon bright, sugary joy, you know, with love and hope <laughs> and optimism. Uh, and it doubles down on the cheesiness and compassion mm-hmm. uh, of 80s films. You know, it doesn't just copy the 80s aesthetic like Stranger Things does. Yeah. It copies the cheesiness and the compassion of 80s superhero films. Uh, down to the, you know, plot nearly making no sense, the jumping around and everything. It was just very bright and very endearing. Uh, and it's charming in its throwbackness, even in its faults. Uh, I think it evoked to me not it evoked to me Richard Donner's classic Superman mm-hmm. and C- and the CW's Supergirl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have to agree on all those points, right? Like I have some major issues with it, and we'll get into that. I yeah. don't think I felt as euphoric about the end, the film in its entirety. I think that what they tried to do was admirable, and it mm-hmm. really, really did have some amazing payoff moments that they may or may not have earned. Uh, you know, but I did enjoy those times. Uh, I I do like. They the earned none of it yeah. except for the Steve Trevor moment. But yeah, everything else was no. Yeah. Everything was a no, but like it still had its moments, right? And yeah, I think yeah. like the the color really did a lot of work. Um, mm. and just the the fact that they leaned into the the eighties thing, right? Like as you just mentioned, in terms of you know not just the look of it, but even the the genre of it, right? The campy dialogue and everything. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I loved all those things, but within that, they could have done so much better. Um, yeah, I I like the message as well, you know. But again, it it just felt as though like there were so many good, 
intentions, mm. uh, which I I thoroughly enjoy them trying to achieve those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, all in all, like it's a mess of a movie, but incredibly yeah. fun. Still, like incredibly fun. Yeah, yeah. I think like in in a it's kind of a, a the blockbuster bomb for a year of very a very depressing tragic year of loss and division and everything. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Now, like message-wise, it hits the right tone now. I think if I had watched it in any other year, I probably wouldn't have liked it as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just on a pure visual level, not story level, visually it's quite breathtaking. Um, yeah. Some sequences here gave me like you know quite a bit of feels. I think the scene where Diana flies for the first time, yeah, you know, it brought me back to watching uh, Superman fly. Um, <laughs> something even things that don't make sense, you know, Diana Webb stinging on on lightning. Yeah. Uh, the, the vibrant costuming, like we're saying, the coloring, like you know, like fireworks in the clouds, the golden lasso, the color composition. Yeah. Uh, a lot of striking shots, you know. Um, I do feel, however, like Steve's minor role, you know, Chris Pine. Uh, his his uh, reactions to a futuristic society of aerobics and mm-hmm. modern art mm-hmm. and subways pretty much stole the show for me. You know, it's it's priceless, and I think it feels better played than than the other Chris and Captain America. Um, he's he's very wide eyed and awed and overjoyed at what humanity has achieved. Yeah. Right? you know, he sees that the world is not perfect, but look how far we've come. You know, there's still like bad things, but or look at the wonders we've accomplished. Like. Yeah. And, and the fact that he was the guy who sacrificed himself so that all this could happen mm-hmm. makes it very poignant. And again, he sacrifices himself here so Diana can do what she wants, you know, yeah. uh, or what she needs to do. Like. Um, that was, I think, like the best uh, story beats of the movie. Like. Oh yeah, absolutely. For sure. Like those few minutes, just mm. that scene itself was definitely the most powerful, hands down. Right, yeah. and I think that bought me a lot of good. We were like going into the into the final third, yeah. Um, of what they were trying to do with the movie, because there were just some things I was just like, really, really yeah. Is, there? is that really what's happening? Yeah, you know, um, it it the movie asks you to suspend a lot of disbelief, right? Mm. And that particular moment between Steve and Diane, just standing kind of in the middle of nowhere behind a pillar, right? Like, um, was like. You know, that was like kind of the final ask. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah. good enough. I'm, uh, for sure. I'll suspend this belief until we're done with this. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, what do you think about uh, Kristen Wiig as Barbara Minerva and Pedro Pascal once again as, uh, as Max Lord? Um, okay. So we'll talk about, about Barbara first and just my thoughts on, on how they treated Cheetah. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think they gave her kind of like enough screen time for her to be the actual arch enemy that she has always been for that. Yep. Right? Like, there's a huge amount of like canonical history behind the character itself. And of mm-hmm. course, Barbara Minerva just being one out of five like iterations of Cheetah. Um, of course. Yeah. I do think that uh, it, it felt a bit too note, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. think. Because we have a MacGuffin that is that is is what it is, um, it felt that they kind of skipped a lot of character work that could have been done, you know. Mm. Yeah. Um. So as far as that goes, I think um, Kristen Wiig as Barbara was interesting. Mm. Kristen Wiig as Cheetah, she didn't get enough, right? Yeah. It was, it was cats. It was ca- the CGI was just cats all over again. Yeah, pretty much. I I really wanted, you know, a different kind of look to to her, right? Yeah, and plus, can I can I mention that her wish was to be an apex predator, and cheetahs are not. Yeah, yeah, I had a big problem with that. Yeah. 
Um, you know, but whatever lah. Magic Stone logic, like I'm not, I'm not gonna overthink it. <laughs> well, I mean, it, the alternative was much more difficult, right? Because if we wanted to trace back all the way into like which actual god gave her her cheetah powers, that would have been a whole different ballgame. Of course, yeah. You know? Um, so yeah. that's that's kind of fine. Um, I uh, just... Pascal as the tram- Trumpian antagonist, I think, was the real villain of the film, and I yep. think Cheetah was like. Uh, almost forgotten. I think a lot of sequels have this habit of like doubling up on villains and they almost always fail. Yep. You know, like J- the Jamie Foxx Electro or uh, Venom in Spider-Man 3, mm-hmm. uh, Sandman in Spider-Man 3, you know, like all, all these like sequel villains, they all, we need two, three, four villains, you know. Like I, I think they could have just done with Max Lord here because uh, thematically Max Lord is the perfect villain and they yep. didn't need to have Cheetah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I don't know why they made that particular decision. It would have been fairly interesting to not even do with Max Lord. Honestly, I think they mm. could have just done Cheetah alone. And yeah. that would have kind of like set the tone for anything else because then Cheetah just keeps coming back, right? Uh, and mm. we haven't gotten any of that from any of the franchises, really. Like, yeah. uh, well, maybe Loki, but then... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I they could have done with either one. Um, I think it's interesting that Max Lord is the... Um, the de facto villain this time around, just because mm. in the comics he's not that. I mean, with that one exception where he minds control Superman mm. uh, and Diana kills him, which you know um, mm-hmm. has his own implications. I think other than that, in the comic book, he's not that much of a character to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I think Pedro had this amazing. He looks like he's having so much fun playing this character. Yeah, the, the typical 80s billionaire villain, you know, like, yeah. like evoking like Wall Street and all that. Like. Yeah, you know, there's so many moments where it's just like, oh, like, this is so World of Wall Street-esque, right? Like, just going out and, like, charming people and all of that uh, under this facade. But at the same time, when it came to anything about his sons, uh, in the moments when he's not in front of the camera, like, that's some serious uh, dramatic, like, flexing going on, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really enjoyed it, to be honest. Yeah. Like, he played his part perfectly, in my opinion. Yeah, I I agree. You know, or you know those moments when random people he he's a he's a famous television personality in the movie, like you know he has these commercials. You know, uh, when the people were asking him to do the thing, do the thing, did you expect him to say this is the way? No, I did not. <laughs> like that was my first like, oh, are you gonna say this is the way? Yeah, oh no, was, I forgot. It was a little strange, um, because yeah. like. I think I was watching Mando just before that, and uh, mm. I, I watched I watched Wonder Woman with my brother, and then he. Because Mando, at the point in time, Mando hadn't taken off his, his mask yet. And then he was just like, why does this voice sound so familiar? What's going on? Who is this guy? Then I was laughing kind of in the background. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it would have been, I mean, I don't know if they would have ever allowed him to do that. But <laughs> that was yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Have, yeah. Um, yeah um, I think for the flaws of the movie, the MacGuffin of the Dreamstone that grants wishes is, is quite incoherent in the rules of it. Yeah. Uh, the narrative plotting, shoddy to say the least, mm. how we get from A to B to C doesn't make sense. Yep. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I guess I, yeah, it, the movie also feels weirdly, right? Over long, yes, but also too short. It does. I think it's because there were a lot of shortcuts taken. And uh, also, um, Patty was saying that the movie she had to cut out like nearly an hour of footage. I think like some of the you know how we get from A to B has been lost to the cutting yeah, room floor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it feels like it's weird. It's too long and too short. Yeah, I I know exactly what you feel. It was one of the points that I made uh, that I wrote yeah. down. Just like, why does it feel like I haven't gotten enough? But it is two and a half hours long, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and it did feel very draggy. Like, 
uh, going into the third act. Um, yeah. yeah. So I don't know how they could have changed it without with like keeping all the things that they wanted to kind of keep in. Again, I do think it was a problem of having two villains. Mm. Uh, and and just kind of that like there's so many things that you need to do right you need to reintroduce the world that Diana is living in in 84 you need mm. to reintroduce Steve you need to talk about the MacGuffin you need to see the backstory of these two villains right and then like have that all play out at the same time while mm-hmm. you know and it just didn't quite work as well as it should have you know mm. uh, again I think if you had cut out Cheetah and like developed a lot more on, on Max Lord then it could have worked I guess yeah yeah I mean you could have cut out either villain to be honest just to streamline it you know like from talking to about the most streamlined no fat economical 30 minutes bing bam boom we are done you know Ma- yep. Mandalorian you yep. can express so much to this two and a half hour almost, you know, unwieldy behemoth. Um, yeah. A bit sad, la, like, the, the movie had a weird pacing conundrum uh, towards it, you know. Yeah. Um, it, had, it had this very, like, aspirational, tear-jerking go- goofiness that I loved about it that mm-hmm. DCU could, frankly, use more of. La, than oh, yeah, for sure. Yet, yet another, like, grimdark, edgelord, Snyder cut. La. Uh, but, you know, uh, not really enough for me to, like, really call this a good movie. Yeah. Uh, really. The best parts of it, I mean, we're going, going to bit the spoiler uh, territory now. Um, yeah. Best part is the first scene uh, of uh, <laughs> Temescara Ninja Warrior. Yeah. Uh, and, and also Linda Carter's cameo at the end. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, my brother was asking me, like, what, what's up with the last thing? And then mm. that was just before they wrote the credits for the fact that it was Linda Carter. You yeah. Know, I, I do a bit of explanation there. Um, but yeah. awesome. Like, awesome stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, in such a stark comparison, I think with the way that the Mandalorian did, dealt with fan service and kind of like the kind of inconsequential fan service that we got in Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because like just moments before we were talking about the plane thing, and mm-hmm. my brother is a fighter pilot, so right, right, yeah, yeah, it was just one of those things that he had so much trouble with. Um, just that whole like traveling in the plane sequence, mm. yeah, and yeah. like, like just literally like a Two minutes before that, it's like, oh my god, are they going to do it? Are they going to make the plane uh, <laughs> invisible? And then they end up doing it. And yeah. I thought they wouldn't. You know, I, I, I had my money on the fact that they wouldn't bring the invisible plane into the picture, but they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. Um, so, also, one little side note, uh, I, I think has been getting a bit of attraction online, more more even than the movie, yeah. is that the Wishing Stone, the Dream Stone, right, mm-hmm. uh, is magic. It's the genie in the water, etc. Yeah. Uh, why did they need to have Steve Trevor inhabit another person's body rather than just bringing back Steve Trevor? They could have easily avoided the whole notion that Wonder Woman, for a good couple of weeks, was basically raping this dude without his consent. Yep. Yeah, which is weird, man. I, I, why, I, why did they need to do that? They had a dreamstone. They had the perfect MacGuffin to like sidestep this. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, just because of how vague the rules are, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's one thing, right? Um, surrounding it, like they want you to have this feeling that yes, you, of course, you have to pay something of an equal amount. Sure, all of mm-hmm. that is fine. And then later on, they're just going like Maxwell is like, yeah, but I'm the stone now. I get to decide. And I was like, what the fuck? Are you serious? Like mm. you know, like all that you even for you know magical overpowered MacGuffins like that, right? Like you have to follow some sort of rule mm-hmm. in order for it to be believable. I guess that it has to do with the fact that. Um, you everything that took place, like all the wishes that took place, had to occur within like the immediate physical realm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and okay. I, I think that's what it has to do with, right? Like it's more of an exchange of, of like space, time, and matter than it is of like actually bringing Steve back from the dead. Well, fair enough, you know. Um, how how would you rate it overall? And any any final thoughts? <sighs> so, are we gonna do like two ratings for this, or like what's? No, nah, I'm I'm just giving it one. I'm averaging the actual rating with the rating I want to give it. I'm gonna give it a five point five. Yeah, just because like I I did enjoy it. Uh, yeah. most most parts of it anyway. I enjoyed the attempt. I enjoyed the intention. I enjoyed you know the message. Mm-hmm. Um. And I can only imagine how good it could have been if they had stuck the landing for all of the things they were trying to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm just going to give it a 5.5 5, uh, with the caveat that I did enjoy it after all. Indeed, yeah. I'm giving it a 6 as well. Um, I enjoyed it on a 7 level. Uh, objectively, pure coldness. I, I'll probably have given it like a 4, so like I'm kind of averaging it out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it's a 6 for me. It's it's an okay film, you know. Um, yeah. if, if you want to watch it, you can. But, you know, it's not a must-watch. Not not in the same way that one, the first Wonder Woman was. There's nothing in here as magical or timeless or iconic as the No Man's Land scene in the first movie, you know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, like, I I felt like the fight scenes weren't as, like, dramatically important um, yeah. to, to what they were doing. Um, the whole, you know, Seraph uh, armor thing was cool mm-hmm. uh, and all that. But, like, the fight with Cheetah was kind of meh, you know, overall. Yeah. Uh, and, and just, like, how that played out was also kind of meh. So Indeed. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, very average reviews from us. Uh, next up, we'll be moving back to Disney Plus, uh, back to Disney with Soul, mm-hmm. uh, Pixar's latest film. Um, Pixar obviously has had uh, set an absurdly high standard in the world of uh, animated movies. You know, uh, it's had you know stuff like Toy Story, Wall E, Coco, uh, Inside Out, stuff like that. Um, and this film belongs right up there with the kind of cerebral, cerebral existential weirdness that Pixar likes to do for kids' films. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so follows uh, Joe Gardner, who is voiced by Jamie Fox. Amazingly, by the way, I had I could not tell it was Jamie Fox. Oh, I, uh, I had so much trouble. Yeah. Yeah, um, he is a jazz pianist and a middle school band teacher who gets the chance of a lifetime to play at the best jazz club in New York for uh, a saxophonist icon called Dorothea that he looks up to. Uh, But just before his big break, he dies in a freak accident which uh, propels his soul to the afterlife uh, and to the great before, which is a fantastical place where new Mm -hmm. souls get their personalities, they get their quirks and they get their interests before they go to Earth. Uh, Determined, to return to his old life, Joe teams up with a precocious soul named uh, 22, uh, who's voiced by Tina Fey, who has never understood the appeal of human experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe desperately tries to show 22 what's so great about living, uh, and by doing so, he may just discover himself, you know, the answers uh, to life's most important question. Um, 22, though, I feel like, you know, has some valid complaints about why she doesn't want to go to Earth. Uh, that's yeah. great, too. Yeah. Uh, but first of all, so is his historic, uh, because it is the first film that centers on a black character. Uh, but more than just a wonderful representation of uh, the black experience, uh, Soul is also an existential and universal uh, journey in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a winning 
setup that is at once uh, mystical but also loaded with uh, humanism and intrigue. Uh, the dynamic between Joe and 22 is fantastic. You know, one is desperate to return to <laughs> Earth. The other is determined never to go. Yep. Uh, the odd couple careens through adventures that prove to be life-affirming and strange and unexpected. Uh, so I think like offers the exact lessons that one might expect from a story about, you know, second chances, you know, what mm -hmm. it takes to discover the joys of living, uh, how to find courage to confront uh, hard, hard truths about your life. Yeah. Uh, it's an exercise in, I think, psychedelic existentialism <laughs> that astonishingly uh, increases its inventiveness as it goes along. But then before you're overwhelmed, you know, it sometimes shifts uh, to lower, more human gears, uh, eventually arriving at a stirring and I think relatively simple, but uh, no less profound meditation on what it means to be alive, mm -hmm. the meaning of it, the passion of it, what really matters. Uh, not to mention, it's also like a very funny movie, both broadly comedic for kids yep. uh, and smartly adult for older audiences. There is, there is a gag in here about the long-suffering New York Knicks that made me laugh so hard <laughs> I had to pause. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, what, what, what do you think about Soul? Oh, man. Um... Soul, I think, caught me a bit off guard, right? Like, I, it is Soul Pixar, but at the same time, I think they've tried some... They've, they're pushing the boundaries as far as, like, the topical things that they want to explore, you know? Yeah. It's definitely the most existential of all the movies that they've ever made. Uh, mm. And you're absolutely right. Like, there's something kind of, like, for everyone. A lot of the references, you know, will probably, like, go over most people's heads and most kids' heads, for sure, you know? Uh, yeah. But like, no matter what your kind of stance is on life and ex existing is, right? There's something mm -hmm. for everyone to kind of like touch base with and laugh about, which mm -hmm. is incredible for the amount of time that they had to tell the story and explore those topics and kind of like throw all these like little laughs here and there. Like, I really, really enjoyed like what they were doing. Um, I do wonder if. You know, I mean, like, I, I watched it a couple of days ago. I I really do wonder if, and I've been wondering since then, whether or not, you know, um, whether or not uh, Joe should have gotten his second second chance and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I mean, like, all in all, like, a very satisfying, very uplifting movie, despite the questions that it poses. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it, I really loved it. Um, yeah, I mean, with a movie like this, music at its core, it's no surprise that the soundtrack is, is one of the company's best uh, ever done. Uh, John Baptiste provides the original uh, jazz compositions, mm -hmm. uh, but some of the real oral delights come by the way of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross once again killing it, mm -hmm. uh, taking a leaf out of, I guess, uh, Michael Levy's songbook to to create, you know, this ethereal synthesized sound for yeah. for the afterlife. You know, mm -hmm. I think uh, like oh no, um, so is an existential. Uh, masterwork with uh, with intricate storytelling and uh, innovative visual flourish. You know, I think volumes could be written about the film's varied, uh, various textures and how yeah. how they map up the the, the the different dream realms and moods and all that. Uh, and it also boasts a complex emotional intelligence, um, very cerebral and whimsical, as I mentioned. A phenomenal soundtrack. I think it's rooted in like you know the spiritual essence of jazz. And and it didn't skimp on the black experience, you know. Um, you know the some of the barbershop sequences and stuff like that is really cool. Uh, I think in that vein, the film riffs on more meaty, profound philosophical themes like mm -hmm. mortality and and meaning of life to quite dazzling effect. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. What What are your any final thoughts on on Soul? Oh, it is an incredibly beautiful film. 
Yeah. Um, just like the the way that they tried to animate the afterlife with the whole cutie thing, very inside out, sure, all of that was good. But like when they come back into the real world, right? There's mm-hmm. so much detail going on that it's kind of crazy. Um, you know, the kind of attention to detail they go on. I think especially when when you know, 22 inhabits a physical body and mm. is just experiencing the world for the first time, uh, you know, in, in that body. Like, I think they spent, like, extra detail with, with, you know, the trees and the leaves and the lighting. It feels very visceral, but mm. very beautiful at the same time. And, I mean, like, it gave me, like, an understanding of what it would be like for a fresh soul to kind of, like, experience life, you know? I yeah I agree you know um soul feels like you know one of uh probably not at the top but near it uh a very deeply humanistic uh silly and kid friendly humor uh, and also has a sincere solemnness yep. that feels very adult uh I would probably rate this a nine out of ten how about you yeah I'm gonna give it a nine out of ten too uh excellent excellent movie I mean like for kids for for teens for adults for older people like I mean there's really kind of nothing that it doesn't offer. Um and like it will it will it will pose some very interesting questions I think and it will, the the questions will be different for everyone you know Indeed. just depending on where you are in life at the moment. Very few children's animation, perhaps none except for this one, focuses on the problems of middle age. Yeah. Uh, you know the ideas that that you struggle with at at that time and I think this is very unusual for a children's film. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that really great movie. Speaking of great animated movies, we'll be moving on to one on Apple TV Plus called Wolf Walkers. Mm. Um, it is an Irish film coming out of a studio called uh, Cartoon Saloon. Um, a decade ago, uh, Tom Moore, who is who runs the studio and is uh the director for this. Uh, he kind of um, startled the world by landing an Oscar nomination for a small film called The Secret of Kells. Yeah. Uh, it was an in- uh, independent animated feature uh, that kind of wowed uh, whoever saw it with its very distinctive look. Yeah. I think at the, at the time, outsider in- animation hardly stood a chance against the Hollywood studios, you know, the Disneys and the Pixars and the DreamWorks and all of that. Uh, but I think no one should be surprised if Tom Moore lands another Oscar n- nomination yeah. uh, for Wolf Walkers. I would have Whereas, you know, this dazzling, hand-drawn visual design that makes every other animated movie or TV show this year kind of look dull in comparison. Uh, Wolfwalkers is set against the 17th century backdrop of England's bloody colonization mm-hmm. of Ireland. Yep. Uh, it is a time of superstition and magic. Uh, the film follows a young apprentice hun- hunter, Robin Goodfellow, who journeys to Ireland with her father to wipe out the last wolf pack in order to protect the community there. Uh, while exploring the forbidden lands outside the city walls, Robin accidentally befriends a free-spirited girl named Mep, uh, a, a member of a mysterious tribe of a ru- that is rumored to have the ability to transform into wolves by night when they sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they search for Mep's uh, missing mother, uh, Robin uncovers a secret that draws her further into the enchanted world of the Wolfwalkers and risks turning uh, into the very thing that her father is uh, tasked to destroy. Mm-hmm. Um, that is pretty much the essential uh, basis of the film. Um, what a gorgeous uh, special uh, film this is, man. Yeah, very it's... visually beautiful, richly imaginative, emotionally re- uh, resonant. Uh, what, what do you think about it? Oh, man. Like, it is incredible. Like, how... The artwork is incredible, right? And yeah. I think that it's hand-drawn, like, just adds another layer of, like, awe into that. It reminded me very much of, uh, you know, like, early Miyazaki stuff. Yeah, it, it, um, 
Cartoon Saloon has been called the Irish Ghibli. Mm, yeah, and I really, really wouldn't be surprised. Like, just the the way that they go about it and the feel of it with all the lights and all that. Like, it reminded me a lot of Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, which we've talked about mm-hmm. already. Uh, in an, um, thematically mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, thematically as well. You know, and, and at the same time, you kind of get a bit of Princess Mononoke vibes there, here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the way and and in which they've decided to do this hand-drawn, right? And at no point in time do you ever kind of feel like they've taken a shortcut. At no point in time mm. do, you, do they not show you like the world in its entirety that needs to be seen for the story to move forward. Okay, like yeah. that in and just based on that alone, just the fact that the art is you know, so beautiful and so like painstakingly detailed um, is worth the watch alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you don't even need to talk about the fact that it's a very fascinating story. You don't need to talk about the fact that like the mythology behind it is pretty like pretty awesome and pretty sound, you know. Um, mm-hmm. The character work and the voice work is really good. The vo- the music is also really really good. Like there's very very little to even want to complain about. Uh as, yeah. as far as it goes, you know. And definitely one of the best pieces of animation that I have watched hands down this year alone if not mm. in the last 10 years. Definitely. You yeah. know, uh, th- this is very evocative of the Cartoon Saloon style. Uh, and if you want to watch more Cartoon Saloon, please dig into their filmography. You know, it's a very underrated, underappreciated, mostly unknown studio mm-hmm. coming out of Ireland. Um, yeah, it's, it's very richly imaginative. Um, it, it taps into story-wise, you know, contemporary concerns while being true to its folklore origins. Yeah. You know, it it kind of weaves together these themes of belonging and female empowerment and environmental preservation and religious persecution. Um, and also, usually when wolves feature into fairy tales, they're nearly always the source of villainy and wickedness and deceit. Yeah. But in Wolf Walkers, uh, it's the humans and their selfish, small-mindedness and their disregard for indige- uh, indigenous cultures yeah. uh, that prove frightening. Um, I think kids need movies like that to to respect their intelligence, uh, to center on strong female characters and mm-hmm. to question policies of blind obedience while making an effort to integrate, you know, rich cultural influences of a past that is des- that is rapidly being bulldozed out of memory like, yeah. because of colonization. It's actually an, a very strong anti-colonization movie, like, mm-hmm. anti-colonial movie, you know. And, and like, you know, don't need to talk about visually, like, visually we've, we've said it again and again. Yeah. This traditional hand-drawn animation is insane, you know. There's this angular woodblock style and free-form line renderings that, that kind of... Uh, differentiate the regimented lives of the townspeople and the fantasy world of the wolf walkers that's really great you know um, providing further contrast is like this predominantly watercolor schemes mm. uh, alternating between you know this amber and autumn hues and the otherworldly nocturnal blues that play uh, an increasing role in, in Robin's new life as she becomes a wolf walker herself uh, yeah. every aspect of it is beautifully rendered yep, absolutely absolutely um, like the I I do feel like it was it felt a little short in places, right? Like I yep. do feel like um the friendship between Robin and 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 Mev was a little it felt a little rushed, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and the father could have definitely used a lot more character work, <laughs> uh, overall. But yeah, I mean, like other than that, like it's really just nitpicking at this point for what was a very um was quite a journey, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, certainly the best 2D animated film of the year, like, if, mm-hmm. if you want if you want to put soul in a different category. Yeah. Um The Father uh, of Robin, uh played by Sean Bean. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> there was a scene in here where 
that was almost reminiscent of Ned Stark on the chopping block. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was supposed to make you think that, you know. Yeah, but oh uh, well. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyways, yeah. Um, very impressive uh, film. Uh, one of the better ones of the year. I'm rating this an eight point five out of ten. Uh, it's an eight out of ten for me, for sure. Nice. Yeah. A uh, very good film. I urge you check. We urge you to check it out on Apple TV Plus. It's out right now. Mm-hmm. Um, switching over back to Netflix, we'll be talking about a different animated series. Yeah. Uh, this one is called Big Mouth. We've been raving about the show probably since the the beginning. So genre equality. Mm-hmm. Um, it returns for its fourth season. Uh, it continues to crassly but also smartly uh, confront the horrors and, igni- and indignities of you know puberty to sublime comedic effects. Um, Despite being an absurdist comedy, you know, with hormone monsters and <laughs> anthropomorphic genitals, um, the series has also been able to astutely tackle emotional growth of its characters as they stumble through adolescence and sexual awakening. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Big Mouth is one of the few animated shows that allows its characters to actually grow older yep. uh, because these changes are fundamental to the types of stories it tells. Uh, this passage of time allows Big Mouth to feel fresh, gain at a greater level of depth in its characters and storytelling as the seasons grow on. Uh, Nick, Andrew, Missy, and Jesse's development has always been the show's focus, but their growth in season 4 is the most significant yet because these characters enter the 8th grade uh, and sexual activity is not just some impossible dream, it's actually a graspable reality now. Mm -hmm. Um, It allows season 4 to contain some of Big Mouth's best and funniest and most <laughs> grossest moments, uh, but it also instills confidence that the show's upcoming seasons should be just as fulfilling because, you know, as we watch through the, these characters clumsily stumble through adolescence mm-hmm. and, and trudge through puberty, uh, there are more layers to it as you get older and I think Big Mouth is smart in letting its characters grow old. Yep, absolutely, for sure. I think uh, it really does help with, you know, uh, how much investment you already have in them, right? And it just continues to be, like, funny and filthy and just all-around awkward all the time, you know? Uh, and they've, they've ventured out on some pretty pretty interesting uh, and, and important kind of limbs, right, in the in the past four seasons. Mm-hmm. And this, this season um, isn't any different. Agree. Um, as I mentioned, kids entered eighth now in season four. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the characters... Uh, and the show move into a more mature territory. Uh, I think Big Mouth effortlessly juggles the hormonal stories with emotional character development, and mm-hmm. and much of it, uh, much of the fallout from the last season, helps kickstart season four with a lot of ammunition mm-hmm. uh, because the characters already begin in a in a place of freefall. Um, it all helps to make this the series's I think busiest season yet, yep. um, as well as a year that really puts this, puts these characters at an important crossroads as they prepare for major shifts in their life. Uh, Missy, probably the most conflicted character, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and her relationship with her racial identity uh, becomes a major storyline this season, uh, as well as uh, fuel for one of the year's best uh, musical numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, it elegantly culminates with the passage of the role from uh, Jenny Slate to new voice actress Ayu Edaberry. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most elegant uh, ways to recast uh, a white actress with a black actress, you know, uh, with the whole controversy going on earlier this year, they decided to recast uh, white actress Jenny Slate with Ayu Edderberry and to tackle that with a story of code switching, with a story of racial identity yeah. and who she accepts that she can be. 
beautifully done. One of the most elegant uh, role transitions I've, I've seen. You mm-hmm. know, other shows mostly they just recast and hope you don't notice. <laughs> yeah. One, they, they, they wrote it into the story. Um, I think it was well done. Did, did, did you think the same way? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I felt like it felt so natural. Mm-hmm. Right, and it really did lend itself to to what they were trying to talk about, you know, with code switching and with kind of like Missy's mixed racial heritage, um, and it was so smart of them to do it in that way, you yeah. know, and just kind of like ease the audience in at the same time. Uh, that being said, like I do feel, honestly, I don't know how many people could tell the difference, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if it really boiled down to it, um, but. I mean, kudos to them for, you know, taking advantage of the fact that that was going to happen regardless and, you know, being smart about it and being able to, you know, talk about something important at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, Big Mouth, you know, obviously, is incredibly crass, so it may turn some people off. Yeah. Uh, but also one of the most progressive and inclusive shows on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, this season continues to tell, I think, important stories. Um, there are episodes that maturely explore uh, trans issues, um, adolescent sexuality, uh, ex- anxiety, uh, racial identity, as I mentioned. Um, it's it's generally wonderful to see how Big Mouth represents something like. like gender transition therapy mm-hmm. with its hormone monsters and the exaggerated rules the world has established. I think it finds a creative way to visually explore the sensitive subject matter. Yeah, uh, It treats it with respect, but it's still not afraid to get gross and to get obscene and to get really <laughs> funny with it. Like. It's, it's very South Parkian in that way. Like. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's, it's still incredibly well done Like with all mm-hmm. the things that they, they have they've been wanting to explore. I, I think the Planned Parenthood one of season three, was it? Season yeah. Three, was one of the best episodes I've seen. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they continue to do good work here. I really enjoyed Missy's kind of like um, arc this time around. I think um, uh, Nick Star was a fascinating kind of like uh, experiment with what they were trying to do. Yeah. As well that I, I, I didn't think they would go there, but sure, you know. Um, so yeah, Big Mouth continues to kind of perform at the level that we've we've always seen them at, and I'm I'm glad to see that they have. I really think, I mean, I if I had a kid, I, obviously I wouldn't allow my kid to watch, <laughs> but but it 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 I think it might benefit them in a lot of ways because it it's not just funny and gross and a very adult, but it's very informative and informational for yeah. children. Like it teaches them things that I think. Some parents and schools don't want to teach them or are too afraid to teach them like real life, important life skills, you know, yeah. like like the, the use of tampons for the first mm-hmm. time. Uh, there is an anthology installment based around hand stuff. That's great. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. The loss of friends, uh, social anxiety. Uh, certain episodes even take kind of like larger stylistic swings that uh, one that jumps several decades into the future mm-hmm. even. I yep. think Big Mouth is a great balancing act that works because the show is simultaneously ridiculous uh, while being emotionally realistic. Yeah. Uh, the show is made for adults, but you know, I've said in the past, children would benefit greatly from the stories being told here. Yeah. It's the rare show that can be this genuine and thought-provoking while also being absurd and, and LOL funny. Uh, there's so much satisfying and specific jokes for people who are like, you know, uh, into like inside baseball kind of stuff. Like, yeah. Um, there are like little like I I I'm, I'm like a bit of a comedy nerd, so I follow a lot of comedy podcasts. You know, like these characters actually like literally quote lines from their voice actors, stand up routines, or podcast appearances. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. insane. Um, there are references to Pen Fifteen here, uh, and Russian Doll. Yep. Um, overall, the se- season four plays with a lot of ideas, uh, but it builds to this <laughs> apocalyptic conclusion, if you can believe it. Uh, about learning how to embrace the worst parts of yourself. Uh, it's a valuable lesson and a satisfying season that's able to bring 
I think a myriad of themes together with some really gross jokes. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's an eight out of ten for me. Uh, any final thoughts and what's your rating? Yeah, it's a seven point five out of ten for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I'm I'm again, you know, uh, with any. With with any kind of like animated series that allows their character to grow, yeah, it's gonna be very fascinating. Like what they're gonna be doing next season as well, mm-hmm. um, and uh, of course, of course, like uh, our regards to John Maloney. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, as he as he um, goes into into rehab and all that, we wish him all the best. Of course, yeah. Um, jumping still into Netflix right now, uh, to a, another show that we actually really, really liked, uh, called Hilda. Mm-hmm. Uh, way back in 2018, one of my favorite little discoveries was a Canadian cartoon on Netflix called Hilda. Uh, it was based on Luke Pearson's graphic novel series, which I guess takes strong influences from Scandinavian folklore. Yep. Um, Hilda is a, a really adorable tale, like full of wonder and adventure, following a free-spirited little girl uh, who is voiced by Liana Mormont, uh, aka Bella Ramsey from mm-hmm. Game of Thrones. Uh, as she is forced to move from her home in a vast magical forest full of elves and giants to the bustling city of Trollburg, where she meets new friends and actually still manages to have strange adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, we were enamored with the show's uh, imaginative and mystical world. It has is full of lovable characters, creatures, and locations for the protagonist to explore. Yep. I think the beautiful animation brings to life the soft, vibrant style the graphic novels are based on. Uh-huh. Um, upon watching the second season, I'm pleased to report that the return to Trollbook uh, is still very very good yeah i uh, still really enjoyed this well, what do you think about season two of, of uh, hilda oh man like it's amazing that they continue to build upon up, upon the world that they've really shown us in season one i think mm-hmm. there was a sense of wonder that you got uh, just from exploring the mythology around the world building in season yeah. one and now that you know hilda's kind of like uh, settled in as, as far as we can um, we can say that uh, into Trollberg <laughs> and all of that, like, but her just kind of banging against the walls of of this new life that she has to adjust to has been very interesting, I think, and very interesting implications about um, humans and their relationship to the the world at large. Uh, in 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 Hilda, um, the stories that they've been telling, uh, I I continue to enjoy them. I I love a lot of like the throwback episodes, you know, with the uh, with the mice again, uh, yeah. the fact that they were bold enough to do an insane kind of like time travel thing that I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting out of Hilda. Yeah, and just, well, that was the best episode. Isn't yeah, it? easily. Like I so enjoyed that episode. Um, you know, and for them to do it in like sh- such a short amount of time, right? To explore that concept in such a short amount of time was kind of mind blowing. Um, and just you know, again, right? Like uh, the whole allegory of of um of humankind's um. Uh, relationship with with nature uh, as the other um is is so well told mm. uh, i really enjoyed the last couple of episodes as well and and just like the implications that has for you know um the things that you want to explore in the future yeah um a great companion series to wolf walkers if you want to watch it back to back um yeah while, while the last season sort of focused on other mysteries i think season two focuses on the city's namesake uh, namely the trolls mm-hmm. 
Um, Hilda's, I think, first season established a very near universal xenophobic fear and hatred of the creatures, yeah. uh, which predictably Hilda lacks. She's not really afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, this season introduces the Trollbook Safety Patrol, um, <laughs> a police force led by the pompous, self-absorbed leader Eric Alberg. Uh, and Hilda and Eric quickly form a feud over their differing views on the trolls, mm-hmm. uh, creating a driving conflict and a narrative uh, that overtakes, I think, Hilda's episodic structure, uh, but gives the opportunity for a longer, more complex story that runs parallel to all Hilda's one-off adventures, yep. uh, coming to a hit like, in, in the season's uh, double-length finale. Um, the relationships and conflicts from the first two seasons also progress, uh, though none as much as the growing tensions between Hilda, Hilda and her worrying mother, uh, Johanna. Mm-hmm. Um, the series establishes, like, a strong bond between mother and daughter, but yep. the bond begins to erode as Johanna becomes increasingly worried about Hilda's well-being, uh, like validly so, and Hilda lashes out as a, at her mother for what she perceives uh, to be overly controlling behavior. Mm-hmm. I think it's refreshing to see such a real emotional mother-daughter story that doesn't cast either side as a villain, uh, but rather presents both sides uh, of the conflict as relatable and understandable, and we know where both of them come yeah. from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, we delve also, you know, into the the worlds of the niece and the elves and the dragons and the witches. Uh, Frida, <laughs> uh, Hilda's best friend, becomes a witch in training this season, mm-hmm. uh, and we're introduced to new creatures and spirits, and and like I mentioned, you know, even a memorable time travel story. Uh, yeah, I mean, I really, really loved it. You know, did did you uh did you like the mother daughter aspect as much as oh, I? Oh yeah, I did. I I absolutely did. I think they went about it in a very kind of uh, interesting way. You know, mm-hmm. kind of like showing us the the major differences, right? Like between what their relationship was like when they were living out in the in the woods, and yep. and what it's like in the city itself. I think to have allowed uh, to have episodes focusing on that, while the rest of the relationship kind of plays out before us through the other episodes, was a very good way to go about it because we got like the whole breadth or and variety of stories that the season offered us. But at the same time, you know, boiling down to kind of the major kind of plot points for the season um, mm-hmm. in the mother-daughter relationship uh, for the last couple of episodes as well really kind of drove the point home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I um, really enjoyed that. Yeah, uh, what, what would be your final thoughts and, uh, and your rating for Hilda season two? Oh, man. Uh, so many good standalone episodes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my only thing is that you can't watch season two without watching season one. You'll be a bit mm. lost, which yep. is fine. Uh, you know, nobody. It, it's not one of uh, an anthology series where you can just jump in anywhere. But that being said, like totally enjoyed it. Um, I'm gonna give it an eight point five out of ten. Nice, yeah. Um, for me, I think Hilda's ability to mix the magical and the mundane, uh, joy and sadness. It's the show's biggest strength. Uh, it it's themes of learning to live harmoniously with your environment. You know, the and the cu- curiosity and the empathy and the freedom of being a truly open minded kid. Uh, it's very universal and so wonderfully executed that mm-hmm. it's hard not to love this show. Highly recommend it once again. It, it's a 7.5 out of 10 for me. Uh, yeah, um, lots of great animation uh, this month. Hilda, Big Mouth, uh, Soul, and Wolfwalkers are actually all very highly recommended. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah, lots of good animation here. Uh, and now I'm going to jump into uh, a small segment that I want to call uh, Quick Hits, where I talk about some of the films uh, and TV shows that my co-host might not have seen. Uh, and I'm going to kick it off with George Clooney's return in The Midnight Sky. Mm-hmm. Um, this is his first acting role in four years. Oh, wow. Um, 
and it's a new sci-fi post-apocalyptic thing that he also directed. It is set in the year 2049, and unspecified events is quickly killing off the planet, sending people underground. Uh, but there are also people much, much higher above. Uh, a group of astronauts who have been on a two-year mission have no idea that they're heading back to a near-dead planet. Uh, can the seemingly last man on Earth warn them to turn around before it's too late? Uh, the clock is ticking and the stage is set for what could have been a thrilling, emotional, and intense journey. Yep. It is none of these things. Oh, um, Clooney launched his directorial career with a wonderful movie called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind mm -hmm. and then followed it up with Good Night and Good Luck. Uh, he's won goddamn Oscars for his directorial work. Um, unfortunately, since then, he's kind of bit, been a bit inconsistent. Mm -hmm. uh, the, with The Midnight Sky, Clooney makes what might be his most ambitious movie yet, you know, a film with two intertwined narratives loaded with special effects. But Clooney, the filmmaker, loses sight of what should have been the the real driving point of his movie, which is uh, emotion. Yeah. But the characters in The Midnight Sky are in constant grief, peril, all in the midst of an apocalyptic event. We should feel for them. We should worry for them. But we don't. This movie aims for a kind of um quiet profound introspection mm -hmm. uh, akin to gravity or ad astra it's just not good enough to accomplish that um it's a perfectly serviceable film with neat special effects but it's quite boring and emotionally impotent mm -hmm. i have seen better versions of this movie like i mentioned you know, can go watch gravity or ad astra uh so yeah it's a five out of ten for me oh damn oh well uh, Next up, we have a new superhero movie called Arch Enemy. Uh, Arch Enemy is from um, Adam Egypt Mortimer. It introduces us to a hero called Max Fist, um, played by John uh, Joe Manganiello. Uh, he also plays Deathstrike, uh, Deathstroke in the DCEU. He is an interdimensional warrior who lives out his days here on Earth. Uh, he arrived on our planet after an all-out battle, left him careening through different dimensions, and then finally he lands on Earth where he is destitute. Uh, and he has no powers. Uh, so Max gets by by being a talkative drunk who will tell anybody he will listen mm -hmm. about his uh, wildly unbelievable story. Uh, and so he's, he's homeless. He just tells everyone, hey, I'm a superhero from a different dimension. Nobody believes him. Uh, one day, Max crosses paths with a guy called Hamster who is an aspiring online journalist who thinks that he's nuts and wants to document him in the hopes of going viral. Uh, subsequently, they take to the streets and they try to you know fight vicious crime bosses and a local drug syndicate. Um, the world of Arch Enemy is this very like chaotic, grim, uh, neon fantasy. I think mm -hmm. we, follow, we follow Max and bounce back and forth between the grey and dirty Los Angeles streets and the colourful animated world of Chromium, which is Max's home world, as it exists in his memory. Um, the animated sequences are really actually quite good. You know, um, Saturated neon pinks, purples, and blues. is very eye-catching juxtaposition. Uh, the action and fight scenes are brutal and, and scored to like metalcore. Um, it's very like, you know, <laughs> image comics. Uh, the, the story is a grim reversal of the, super, of the Superman story. Like, um, mm -hmm. Arch enemy kind of pummels his way into the saturated, gritty deconstruction slash commentary of superheroes and how they would behave in the real world that subgenre mm. um it's it's uh, uh it's not as good as the boys okay it's not as clever as the tick okay but and but it is a fast-paced uh adrenaline fueled addition <laughs> uh to the superhero grim dark genre uh that is worth watching because it's fun 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, it doesn't. It, it's not as good as the boys that you take. Like, I just have to say, but it, it is entertaining. It doesn't land all the punches, but it's okay. It's six out of ten. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, next up, I'm talking about the latest franchise spinoff to The Walking Dead called The World Beyond. Uh, the Walking Dead has been running for ten years now. Its spinoff here, The Walking Dead, has been on for what, five or six seasons, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one might think that the zombie-infested world has been pretty much thoroughly explored by this point. Yet here we are with another spinoff, a limited event series that promises to view The Walking Dead universe through the eyes of, get this, teenagers who have come of age in the zombie apocalypse. So they grew up in a community safe behind a wall, and they have led relatively normal lives up till now. Mm-hmm. However, it's two main characters who are sisters named uh, Iris and Hope decide to venture out beyond the wall to search for their missing father. It's a solid enough premise on paper, uh, but unfortunately, the show introduces um, a troupe of typical stock characters then sets them off to trapeze through abandoned towns and zombie-filled forests that viewers have seen many, many, many times before in this franchise. The drama feels very contrived and manufactured, less born of character mm-hmm. uh, and more born of we gotta fill time in this new spin-off. Oh. Nothing about it is essential, nothing about it is, is interesting. So essentially, it's The Walking Dead. Lah. It's 2 out of 10. Oh, wow. I did not expect a 2 out of 10. Uh, we, I figured it would be pretty bad, but 2 out of 10 is... Uh... Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the bad Walking Dead seasons, I mean, probably like four at the worst, right? Yeah, you know. Yeah. But this is this is really bad, man. Ugh, okay. Uh, next up, I'll be talking about Alice in Wonderland. It is based on Hara Aso's incredibly popular manga and anime series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alice in Wonderland centers on a college dropout slacker and aimless gamer named uh, Ryohei Arisu, uh, accompanied by his two best friends. One day, the trio are stunned to find that their home city of Tokyo is totally deserted, empty of life and human beings, except for one single mysterious woman named Usagi. Uh, They quickly find out they are trapped in a parallel reality where they are forced to compete in a series of daily games in order to survive. Tokyo is now full of these survival challenges, categorized by playing cards, denoting their different type and difficulty. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Instructions are relayed by smartphones and failure results in a very messy death. Uh, Ariso and his friends are forced to work together with other humans that they encounter in order to stay alive long enough to figure out what the fuck is going on. Um, Visually, the imagery of the empty downtown Tokyo is stunning in a like 28 days later kind of way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And conceptually, it's basically a modernized city-wide version of Saw. Um, It rockets along at a breakneck pace and dispenses uh, plot or character information as is needed, uh, relying on the diversity and excitement of the games themselves, not the characters of the games yeah. to keep viewers engaged. Uh, and yeah, I was engaged. You know, the, the, the production is slick, but action is well choreographed and exciting. The games are clever. Uh, characters are believable as best friends and assholes thrust into uh, an unpredictable situation. Uh, and eight episodes, all of them underneath an hour, it is a lightning fast and very easy watch. Yep. It's not deep. There is nothing especially clever or profound about it, but it is entertaining. Uh, and probably, I've at least from my experience, the best enemy to life action adaptation I've seen. Uh, did you manage to catch Alice in Borderland? Uh, I caught uh, maybe about three episodes. I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it looks it looks good. Um, yeah. The the fast pace of of the action like kind of really distracts you from having to think mm-hmm. about it. Uh, but for me, like at the end of the day, I mean, honestly, I think it's a very well done anime adaptation uh, as far as it goes. 
but this kind of genre has been done to death in anime. Yep. And the ones yep. that have been done really well in anime are leagues ahead of this. So, Definitely. you know, I I mean, I, I wanted to check out what the, all the hype was about. I do think that a lot of the, like, just rebuilding Shibuya Crossing is madness. Mm. Um, you know, the, the kind of effort they, they've gone in to, to, to get the scenes itself. Um, kudos to them for that. But at the same time, I've seen better. So I kind of dropped it after three episodes. Yeah, it's a 6.5 out of 10 for me. Uh, entertaining, mm-hmm. but not necessary viewing. But, you know, like, you, it is people, every, the hype around Empty Shibuya, Empty Tokyo is is damn right, man. Mm-hmm. It's an impressive bit of, of filmmaking right there. Uh, next up, I'll be talking about Detention, which is a Taiwanese supernatural horror film. Mm-hmm. It is based actually on a popular video game, uh, but of the same name uh, developed by Red Candle Games. Um, the film was initially released in 2019 in Taiwan and Hong Kong. It's just been added to Netflix for international viewers, which is why I'm doing the review now. Uh, Detention is set in 1962 du- during Taiwan's White Terror period, which was a, a period of brutal martial law that violently oppressed uh, political dissidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film follows two students trapped at their hillside high school at night while trying to escape and find their missing teacher. They encounter ghosts and a, a dark truth about their fate. Solid premise, but this movie is, I have to say, 0% scary and 100% boring. Oh, uh, worst of all, it, it, it emphasizes the white terror setting, right? Yeah. You know, a, a, ter- uh, a, a setting that may, many people may not know about unless you're from that area or from you know, Asia. Yeah. Uh, about you know, suppressed political dissidents mm-hmm. for no reason at all. It gives the audience no context or no political background. It, it gives you no allegory to what's happening on the outside. It feels as a political movie. It feels as a political allegory. It's a 3 out of 10 for me. Oof. Oof. Okay. Uh, next up, uh, let's talk about Monster Hunter. It is Paul W.S. Anderson's uh, new video game adaptation mm-hmm. uh, from the Capcom video series of the same name. Now, this film already kicked off to terrible first impressions uh, just after its Chinese release on December 4th last year. The film caused an uproar on Chinese social media because of a scene in which one character jokingly asks, look at my knees, and to the question, what kind of knees are these? He replies, Chinese. Um, though, <laughs> you know, the, the language made by the films uh, through, uh, through the, the subtitles, right? Chinese viewers interpreted this as a reference to a racist playground chant and therefore an insult to the Chinese people. The film was mm. removed from circulation in China. Production studio Tencent even issued an apology. They prepared a modified version of the film, omitting the line, but even these showings were banned. The controversy caused Chinese users to bomb Monster Hunter World, the game reviews you know, on, on websites. Yeah. Um, so okay, bad start. But you know, to be <laughs> honest, I am really jealous of the Chinese audiences because their government saved them from watching the shitty fucking movie. <laughs> but by a guy who made Mortal Kombat and Resident Evil. He is the king of shitty video game adaptations. Mm. The dialogue is hammy. It's exposition filled. Just absolutely terrible on pretty much every conceivable level. Characters are so poorly developed that you have no idea why anyone is doing anything. And yes, there are cool monster designs and decent special effects and okay action, but it's nowhere near enough to redeem this piece of trash. It's a 4 out of 10 for me. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you did you catch a Monster Hunter by any chance? No, no, I I didn't, I didn't. But I used to play a ton of Monster Hunter, right? Like it's, mm. it's one of those games that you either really love or you really hate, and it's one yep. of those huge time sinks in your life, right? 
Uh, and the fact that it, it got revitalized from like new players a couple of years ago with Monster Hunter World, you know, yeah. I figured it would be a matter of time for a shitty mm-hmm. movie to come out. And then yeah. they announced who was doing it and who was in it. I mean, I love Mila Jojovich, like, don't get me wrong. Like, Indeed. Her, in Resident Evil 1, Alice in Resident Evil 1 is still one of my favorite characters. Mm. Um, but I was just like, yeah, this is going to bomb. It's going to bomb so badly. So I didn't, thankfully, have to watch it or watched it at all. So yeah. uh, thank you for your sacrifice and taking one for the team. Oh, man. Um, yeah, uh, this is a terrible film. Um, <laughs> even, even without the... Obviously, I know they said it was unintentional, but it was clearly a racist joke. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and considering one of their biggest audiences is the Chinese, you know, um, uh, box office market. Yeah. How did that pass QC? You know, it's yeah, it's whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so many mistakes. Uh, anyways, uh, let's move on to the final topic of this episode. It is the pool list, and for this book recommendation. I'll be talking about Pira Nessie. Mm. It is Susanna Clarke's uh, follow-up novel to her 2004 debut, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, have you read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? By any I time? have. So I, like, Pira Nessie has been on my to-read list, so I'm very curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I mean, uh, Strange and Norrell is one of my favorite fantasy books of all time. Mm-hmm. It was such a thick and detailed alternative history, you know, involving the return of magic to 19th century England. You know, the book won the Hugo Awards. It was picked by Time Magazine as the best novel of the year. Um, unfortunately, in the ensuing years, uh, Clark was bedridden uh, due to an illness called uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, her condition made her work on her follow-up novel slow going. Uh, but thankfully, 16 years later, Clark has finally finished uh, her second novel, Piranesi, which is a magical labyrinth fantasy featuring a house of infinite rooms and, uh, and a quest to unravel the finite truth within it. Uh, let me tell you this book, yet another masterpiece from Susanna Clark, establishing her as one of the greatest living authors. Um, it's not the 800-page behemoth that her previous book was. This is actually a very slim new novel, mm. but story-wise and thematically, it is just as weighty. Um, Piranesi takes the form of a series of journal entries written by a man who lives in perpetual quarantine of sorts, uh, an isolation so complete that he spends his days primarily speaking with birds and statues. Uh, his nickname is Baronesi. We don't know his real name. Um, it's hard to say more about him without giving away too much, in part because he seems to know hardly anything about himself. For one thing, he has forgotten his real name. For another, he doesn't have the slightest interest in finding out what it is. In contrast to, you know, the self-absorbed protagonist who populates so many contemporary novels, Piranesi is completely unencumbered by questions of ident- identity. His mind is a mystery both to himself and to the reader, and one of the many joys that the book offers is the satisfaction of slowly piecing together an explanation for his apparent amnesia. Mm-hmm. Um, another is the experience of seeing the world, however briefly through the eyes of someone devoid of ego, um, then there is the simple thrill of turning the pages to find out what happens next. It's a propulsive page turner. Although on one level, the, the book is a philosophical puzzle, something akin to like Kafka or Borges, um, it offers the excitement of an adventure story uh, and the dark allure of almost a detective yarn. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the few things that Piranasi does not know about himself is that he's a scientist. He believes his duty is to bear witness to the splendors of the world, a job that he pursues with unflagging joy. And the world is not one that we've ever seen before. 
Piranesi doesn't know that there's an outside world. He lives in what he calls the house, which is an infinite labyrinth of stone halls mm-hmm. lined with statues and swept by ocean tides. Um, as far as he knows, the universe has ever contained has only ever contained fifteen people. Um, his only friend, who he calls the other, is an unpleasant scholar. He's a, a scholastic type, uh, mm-hmm. attempting to discover the great and secret knowledge, quote unquote, hidden in the house. But other meets with Piranesi twice a week uh, for no more than an hour at a time. Everyone else there is dead. Here, Clark explores the themes of loss and isolation, despite Piranesi never really being lonely or bored. He takes pleasures in the smallest wonders of the world as a child might. He spends his days cataloging statues, gathering and drying seaweed for kindling, uh, mending fishnets, um, observing birds, uh, writing precise accounts of his days and nights in his journal, uh, which he hopes a future visitor might find and read someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, his life in the house wasn't always so blissful, though. As the story unfolds, we learn about, you know, that he once dated his diaries in conventional fashion, mm-hmm. but then he lost track of calendar years. He doesn't know what year it is, doesn't know what date it is. At one point, he notes in his diary that he has switched to a new system. So the first entry takes place in, quote-unquote, the year of weeping and wailing, mm-hmm. a period marked by fear and hunger and bewilderment. But in time, Piranesi learns how to fish and make a fire. The year of weeping and wailing gives way to the year I discovered the coral halls, mm-hmm. which is then followed by the, the year I named the constellations. The more time he spends in the house immersed in its beauty, the less he remembers of the identity that he lost and the pain of losing it. So unable or unwilling to gaze inward, or dwell in the past, he is eternally joyful in the present. Um, Clark kind of reminds us that is there is nothing ordinary about Piranesi's world, about see uh, Piranesi's way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. The labyrinth can be a prison, especially if it's driven, if you are driven by ego. The, the the scholar who meets with Piranesi doesn't register the beauty of the surroundings at all. To him, it's just quote unquote, uh, an endless dreary rooms, all all the same. He says, you know, full of decaying figures and covered with bird shit. He is blinded by reckless ambition. The scholar believes the sole reason for studying the world is to plunder it, to find some hidden source of power that he can exploit. He doesn't notice, as Piranesi does, that the bird shit is a sign of life Mm. and that the statues which stretch along the endless wall seem to represent all the ideas and knowledge and experiences that have ever existed. Uh, so it's the it kind of explores the contrasting philosophies of these two men. Uh, what a beautiful book, man! Uh, my my personal uh, book of the year uh, for twenty twenty. Wow. Uh, it's a ten out of ten for me. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, all right, all right. I'm yeah. I'm gonna go pick up a copy. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a glowing review right there. Man, um, it's available in the National Library right now, which is how I read it as well. Ah, okay, cool. Oh, if you live in Singapore, I don't know whether your international libraries have Piranesi <laughs> yet, but the Singapore libraries do have it. Yeah, okay. I'm definitely going to go go pick up a copy. Uh, I mean, like, Stranger Norel, like, also one of my favorite books. So, like, I'm yeah. glad to know that, you know, she managed to to um, continue writing with everything that's going on with her health and she managed a masterpiece. Man, um, with if I'm tired, I, I sometimes, you know, what, one time when I was tired and I came home, I accidentally threw my, like, my wallet into the into the dustbin into like the trash yeah. thing, thinking that it was a pack of cigarettes um for her to be this she's a very detailed writer if you read Noro and mm-hmm. strange right mm-hmm. she is so detailed in fact the the world that she has the magic system she establishes in Noro 
is so detailed that like what half of the 800 pages is just full of footnotes yep. you know what i mean yep. <laughs> uh and she's equally detail oriented here while still not losing sight of the emotion and the philosophies of the characters very very well done oh cool all right i did start reading that Indeed, indeed. Uh, yeah, that would be a good 2021 read. Uh, and I would encourage all of you to check that out as well. Uh, and also, I actually listed the 10 favorite books I read in 2020 uh, on the Genre Equality page, so you can check that out if you want. So, yep. so it's not it's not the best books of 2020 per se. It's the best books that I read in 2020. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, so some from the past, some from now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and of course, uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, um, we also have links to Hitz's, um top, what top 50 tv shows and top 50 tv shows and top top 25 movies of the year yeah so you know um going into january and uh this new new year 2021 um Mm -hmm. there's going to be a bit of dead time before we kind of get anything major series wise or movie wise if you want to take some time to go and check those out and and you know something to watch in the meantime uh, yeah. You can go check that out. We will also be discussing all the notable mentions on our other podcasts on the Genre Equality uh, channel. Behold, yeah, we'll be talking about the honorable mentions, uh, aka the most overlooked movies of last year. Mm. Uh, the next episode, we'll be talking about the most overlooked movies of 2020, uh, particularly a little film that Anticipate Pictures brought in called St. Francis, uh, as well as a really underrated family drama called The Nest, uh, which was really held down by its unevocative title mm. uh, and a documentary about uh, a Macedonian beekeeper um, <laughs> called Honeyland <laughs> uh, and then we have uh, we'll be talking about honorable TV shows as well I'm picking up Feel Good a uh, documentary called City So Real mm-hmm. and Mythic Quest uh, Isa might have honorable mentions too and, and I- I'll watch them like, if he names any of course yeah yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do um, space out our schedule a little bit uh, mm-hmm. hopefully with you know 2021 coming in and uh, with the vaccines going around, um, we'll be able to have more shows to talk about and, and yeah. more episodes to record. Man, speaking of having lack of shows to talk about, uh, the next episode of Genre Equality, uh, <laughs> very little. But doesn't mean that there's nothing big going on because uh, I have made the expense the main topic of the next episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep in mind that when we are recording that episode of the expense, we would not have seen the finale yet. Yeah. But I so needed a big title for the episode <laughs> that, that I was like, yeah, the exp- it has to be the expense. If not, it would just be like a yeah. series of like B-League titles. Uh, but but also, you know, Star Trek Discovery is ending soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carmen San Diego comes back in January for a full season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll be talking about the final season of Sabrina. Uh, His Dark Materials has wrapped up season two. We Can Be Heroes, uh, the Doctor Who New Year special, uh, the live-action Promise Neverland, mm. the latest uh, adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand, uh, and a bunch of others. And I'll be talking about a couple of comics that I didn't get around to talking about through this year. Uh, one of them is We Only Find Them When They're Dead, uh, and the other is uh, a very hyped comic called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin, mm-hmm. which I finally caught up with. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I mean, like, uh, we've, we've got, we still have things to talk about, so... Mm. Yeah, but like you, you saw from the rundown, right? Like, I needed like uh, I needed like an anchor. There was there was nothing there that could have been like you know, oh, must listen to this episode. So yeah, the expense has to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like if we um, I haven't really, I haven't really checked what's coming in for our spring anime season. So I may or may not do that. We'll see how it goes. Okay. Yeah. 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 But uh, but yeah, I'm excited to talk about the expense man. It's been a great season so far. Mm, yeah, definitely for that. I'm I'm pretty excited to talk about Star Trek as well, 
Mm. Uh, interesting. Let's just say it's been an interesting season. Um, I think there'll be quite a bit of meat for us to chew on. Definitely. Uh, especially me with all my Star Trek purism. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I won't say whether I like it or not. <laughs> you, you have to tune in. Yeah, we'll 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 uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, but uh, I guess until that, uh, until next month. Yeah. Uh, this has been a hit there. And I'm Isa. We'll catch. Uh, happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Goodbye. Ciao.